Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Graham Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China and the World, and some good news, which you all have a part in. We've been nominated for two Australian Podcast Awards: Best Current Affairs Show and Best Moment. So if you have a moment, please go along to the Australian Podcast Awards website and give us your vote in the People's Choice category. Much appreciated. This month we're going to indulge our inner China nerds with what would once have been called Pekingology. China's Communist Party has just finished its sixth plenum with a historical resolution. It's third in the party's 100-year history. But what does it all mean, or is it just political theatre? Here's how China's state-run broadcaster CGTN reported on events with breathless analysis from Lawrence David Kuhn. The deep message of the sixth plenum of the 19 CPC Central Committee shines brightly right on the surface: a major historical event and a major historical transition. Reaffirming in the strongest terms, we're joined by two top sinologists to pass the tea leaves. We'll be joined later by Jeremy Barmay, editor of China Heritage and the founding director of the Australian Centre on China in the World at Australian National University. But we're starting off by talking to Patricia Thornton of Merton College at the University of Oxford, who's also the author of a China Quarterly special issue on party history. Patricia, we've finally seen the resolution from this、uh, meeting. And in full, it's called the resolution of the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party on the major achievements and historical experiences of the party's 100-year struggle. But what can we glean from this massive document? I mean, is it a significant historical moment, or is this just political stagecraft? Well, first of all, the name of the title of the document is already a clue that、uh, you know it's quite a tongue twister. As is the name of Xi Jinping thought. Uh, on, with Chinese characteristics for her new era,、um, so I, this document very clearly, as I think has been noted by many people,、uh, has clearly cemented Xi Jinping in his position、uh, at the top of at the helm of the Chinese Communist Party.、Uh, he has, or one of the key formulations to come out of this document, has been the so-called two establishments, which establish him as the core of the Chinese Communist Party. But also, Xi Jinping's thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era as the core of the ideological program of the Chinese Communist Party moving forward. I mean, are we going to hear these establishments being rolled out everywhere, or is it going to be like the three represents Jiang Zemin's formula, which, you know, frankly, has kind of slightly withered away? Uh, well, actually, the three represents was mentioned in the、uh, the new historical resolution. But with respect to the two establishments,、uh, we'll have to see because、uh, Xi Jinping's the China Dream,、uh, which、uh, people will recall, of course, from his first term in office,、uh, really sort of ended with more of a whimper than a bang. Um, and、uh, although it's referred to、uh, it, it, on occasion, still it ha- it didn't take off in the way that I think、um, the party propagandists would have hoped.、Uh, with respect to this new, the two establishments,、uh, I think this one has a lot more staying power. 
Um, first of all, a historical resolution. There have only been three in Chinese Communist Party history. So obviously, this is a document of great weight and significance passed by the uh, Central Committee unanimously. And they've, we've, those of us who read the People's Daily on a regular basis, we've already seen uh, you know, a barrage of news articles uh, and, and pronouncements coming from the leadership uh, to different groups, aimed at different groups about how they need to study and implement um, th this particular document. So I, I think that the, uh, the two establishments are likely to be here to stay for some time. Uh, and they, I think, to be honest, they represent the very core of what Xi Jinping said his aims were in passing this resolution. And I mean, it's interesting that although this is supposed to be a resolution on party history, something like two thirds of it is devoted to Xi Jinping's era, which is only nine years. And, it, you know, his name is mentioned 22 times. So it's more times than Mao, who's only mentioned 18 times. Poor old Hu Jintao only gets a single mention. It, it's really about putting him front and center of everything, right? It's more about the future than the past. Yeah, it, well, I, I, I think a significant um, proportion of this document is devoted to the future in a way that we did not see, obviously, in the second resolution, nor did we see that in the first history resolution, 1945. Again, 1981, there wasn't much talk about, you know, cementing the future. It was it was really historical resolutions in the CCP have been traditionally about going back over the old ground in order to look at a previous line struggle or ideological disputes and to settle those disputes in a way that would make possible the moving forward. But this document doesn't really do very much of that. I, To be honest, um, I was a bit surprised to see uh, how much it did go back over uh, the Mao era. Uh, it does talk about Tiananmen. That was some of the speculation leading up to the resolution. Would it mention Tiananmen? And it does do those things. And I was a bit surprised, quite frankly, because uh, in some of the, uh, in the communique and in some of the documents we saw prior to the release of the text of the resolution, it suggested that it would take, in a sense, accept as read, uh, the the previous two resolutions. So I really, on that, that ground, I was not expecting it to go back over um, some of the earlier history. Now, Patricia, we've mentioned that you're the author of a, a special issue um, about party history and party rule. And a core of what you're talking about in that volume is democratic centralism. And I was delighted to see that it was front and center of, uh, of, of, the, uh, of the text, whereas in the communique, there was no mention of it. Yeah. I mean, um, what is democratic centralism, I guess, for our listeners? And, and why, how is Xi Jinping using it differently to his predecessors? The democratic centralism is the organizational principle of the Chinese Communist Party and defined as such in its constitution. Uh, it is inherited as a practice from uh, the Communist International uh, and Soviet advisors uh, uh, way back in uh, 1921, they attempted to uh, introduce it, but it wasn't introduced uh, until quite a bit later. Uh, it wasn't adopted until quite a bit later. But the concept of uh, democratic centralism is this idea that within a Leninist party, uh, discussions and open debate uh, and even free-flowing dispute would be allowed and until the Central Committee, or perhaps what they would now update as the core of the leadership, 
comes to a determination on what the policy direction ought to be. And then uh, all members of the party are absolutely required to implement that line, even uh, in an unquestioning way, whether or not they, they agree with it. So what's interesting about the reappearance of democratic centralism uh, now, or the appearance of democratic centralism now in this history resolution, is that it once again reasserts uh, Xi Jinping's control from the top, or the core of the party's control from the top over all of the discussions and the processes that are now going on within the Chinese Communist Party. And this, I think, does mark a fairly significant departure from some of the language we saw, at least at the beginning of the Hu Jintao era, which focused on inter-party democracy. So uh, basically what I would say is that this document instantiates now a very clear uh, shift in direction away from collective leadership, away from the established norms of uh, inter-party democracy that were operationalized under Hu Jintao. And now it, it is much more an emphasis on the party center, the party's leader, and everyone falling into line behind the party line unquestionably. Or unquestioningly, I should say. Yeah, but there's there's a, a huge amount in the resolution about corruption, and there's a very telling line where he refers to the the weak and lax government that came before him, or weak and lax governance. I think the words are. I mean, is this his claim that by having greater party discipline, it's not that his predecessors were wrong; it's just they weren't tough enough, if you like, to uh, to bring people into line. Yes, exactly. I mean, and that's a very interesting observation because it does seem to there there are quite a number of points in this text in which Hu Jintao's leadership is criticized for basically being weak and failing to achieve the aims that had been set um, by the Central Committee. So I, I find that I find that very interesting because in the second historical resolution, 1981, under Deng Xiaoping, he could have taken fire or uh, lined up Hua Guofeng in his sights and, and said more or less the same thing. But uh, he chose not to do that. And, and, you know, again, uh, Deng Xiaoping himself uh, was not mentioned excessively in the second historical resolution in the way that Xi Jinping is being mentioned over and over again in this resolution. So I think that uh, it is interesting that Xi Jinping has used this as an opportunity to really critique quite extensively the mode of operation or the mode of governance of the Chinese Communist Party of his predecessor, which again, I think, uh, you know, is about the abandonment of collective decision making and those norms of inter-party democracy that uh, Hu Jintao had attempted, at least in the first part of his period of rule. Uh, and that, that model now seems to be decisively put to one side in favor of this more strict Streamlined, more robustly centralized, more disciplined party uh, that's going to fall into line right behind Xi Jinping. Now, uh, can I also add whether or not that succeeds is a different matter, you know, and I think one of the things that we even saw on the front page of the People's Daily, there is an article describing the process by which the resolution was passed. And uh, it seems almost defensive in its tone. Uh, again and again, we are now seeing, and I think some of the documents that have come out since the resolution are even 
as they're at least as interesting, if not more interesting than the resolution itself. And it does, there seem to be some slightly coded references to disagreements within the Central Committee. And I think this tone that we now have in this new document or this new article about uh, how the the resolution came to be, uh, it's prefaced with the, a list of all of the different kinds of consultations that Xi Jinping did take uh, or take part in, uh, in the lead up to this resolution. And again, it to me, it strikes me at least as having a defensive tone, which suggests to me that, that Xi Jinping is receiving some criticism within the party for this one-man rule. Yes, it was, and it was telling at the end of all this talk about consultation, every single paragraph ended with, and there was unanimous agreement. <laughs> <laughs> and after like the 10th unanimous agreement, I thought, well, it's a problem here. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, I can't imagine that they're not aware that in describing the way that this ex post facto consultation is taking place, that they're not exposing how thin the veneer of democracy is in democratic centralism. So we were discussing this one sentence that was really interesting where they're really taking aim at self-centered behavior, decentralism, liberalism, departmentalism, and the nice guy mentality. And I just wondered, what is this no more Mr. Nice Guy thing? Who is that directed at? It does sort of sound like the domestic equivalent of the wolf warrior diplomacy. Um, Again, this is all language. It seems to me that Xi Jinping is aiming at his rivals or at his opponents or um, what he would consider to be the anti-Xi Jinping forces. Uh, within the party. And then more broadly, this is again a warning about uh, democratic centralism, because under Xi Jinping, uh, democratic centralism has been written into administrative law such that non-party cadres and members of state uh, departments who do not uh, toe the party's line can now be prosecuted by law for not following the party line. So that is to say, the uh, violations of democratic centralism are now, they constitute a form of administrative wrongdoing and crime. So these uh, good guys or these, how did you describe it again? The um, the nice guy, no more Mr. Nice Guy, this kind of thing. He is clearly critiquing the behavior of bureaucrats who uh, say one thing and then do another or uh, have poor methods of implementing policy. And again, I think that that's a really interesting hint to what's going on behind the scenes. So we have Xi Jinping and he's appearing more powerful, more centralized, uh, you know, uh, more uh, leaning in the favor of totalism than than we've seen under anyone since Mao. Uh, but at the same time, we're also seeing cri- criticisms of people uh, or of behaviors within the party ranks or the, the ranks of the state uh, bureaucrats that suggest that foot dragging is continuing to be a problem or that partial implementation is going to be, it has been a problem, or that people claim to be carrying out local experiments or innovations, uh, which are actually, uh, uh, according to Xi Jinping and perhaps the Central Committee as well now, that this constitutes a violation of, of party discipline. So they're basically trying to create this much more streamlined, uh, centralized uh, party and state that follows right behind Xi Jinping without any other types of distractions or any obstacles whatsoever. 
And what can we read from the mentions of Hong Kong and Taiwan? I mean, there's this sort of, you know, a few paragraphs about Hong Kong, and they talk about a, a variety of complicated factors that led to anti-China activities aimed at destabilizing Hong Kong. And I thought it was quite interesting that they even brought up these issues. I mean, why do you think they're there? I, I'm, I absolutely agree. This was another big surprise for me, actually, in the text of the resolution itself. Because if the goal of this particular resolution is to cement Xi Jinping uh, as, as, as the core of the party and to basically celebrate his achievements, then so arguably uh, the situation in Hong Kong uh, reflects quite poorly on his handling of, of the domestic situation. Uh, it, likewise, the coronavirus pandemic could would arguably have been seen or it ought to have been seen as something that Xi Jinping certainly hadn't handled well. So the idea that the that the resolution is addressing these in a, in a sort of defensive way, um, I think places uh, the resolution and Xi Jinping in a somewhat tenuous position because he's called attention now to uh, in a way, I think, of trying to call out out his critics, but in so doing, he's called attention to some of the great, um, I would say, arguable missteps uh, of his uh, period of rule. And, and, and to that, of course, I would add uh, the, the increasing resistance China is experiencing in terms of international trade and just more generally uh, pushback coming from other countries across the globe. No, there was a fair bit in the text, a surprising amount really, on um, on Mao. And there was a little bit of soft soaping going on, particularly about, you know, how tough Mao was and corruption. And certainly at those points, I was thinking, oh, this is sounding a lot like someone else that I, I, I know. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, what what's the motivation there for, for lining himself up? I mean, some of that language could have been lifted straight out of Xi Jinping's own biography. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. So uh, Mao becomes, then poses a really interesting problem for Xi Jinping, I think, in this resolution, um, because um, he needs to, again, as Deng Xiaoping needed to do before him, rescue the parts of Mao uh, uh, and Mao thought that are, remain useful to the party today. And at the same time, to clearly reflect what was said in the second resolution in 1981, that Mao made serious mistakes. And one of the interesting bits about how Mao was handled is that in some of the brief mentions of um, Mao Zedong, it, there was an attempt to shift blame for the failures of the Cultural Revolution, for example, onto Zhang Qing, onto the Gang of Four, and onto Lin Biao. So the suggestion there is it wasn't really, it is in a sense a, a peddling, a backpedaling on the conclusions of the second uh, history resolution. And I, I, I think as we saw uh, on the page, the front page article in the People's Daily that described uh, the party plenum's passing of this resolution, they talked about um, when the resolution was distributed to the members of the Central Committee, they broke into 10 groups and they were having these discussions that were allegedly overseen by members of the Politburo Standing Committee. Uh, and I believe the uh, author of the article said that the, that the comrades were so excited that they, they leapt to their feet and were queuing up to speak at the microphone. 
and and that sometimes people were speaking over each other. So, um, I, and I that is, uh, you know, obviously a bit of whitewashing um, in from the uh, the uh, uh, the reporter for the People's Daily. But what it does suggest is that there was some fairly robust discussion. And in that article, the, it's the author suggested or the journalist suggested that the the key passage in the resolution or the key topic of that very um very lively discussion was how would this third historical resolution relate to the previous two and the reason that that is important is because the second resolution identified the errors that Mao made it later on in his life as a result of his disastrous cult of personality and because he was exercising his power arbitrarily. And these are charges, of course, that have been leveled against Xi Jinping himself. So uh, the way that I read that account that appears on in the People's Daily of the plenum and its discussions is that people were in one way or another, the the members of the Central Committee were flagging that up as 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 an issue that needed to be rethought. But Graham, as you pointed out, it was passed overwhelmingly as a result of this this very lively consultation. So I'm not sure how much was fed back into the resolution. It would seem as though very little was. And I mean, looking forward, do you think this is setting the path for a kind of more uncompromising stance on China's part. Um, I'm particularly looking at these sections, which are really quite, you know, the, the section that says constant retreat will only be, bring bullying from those who grab a yard if you give an inch. Making concessions to get our way will only draw us into more humiliating straits. It all sounds kind of quite hard line. Do you think it's setting the stage for that whole wolf warrior stance to sort of, you know, be rolled out even more. Yeah, I think that that's a signal. I mean, and I think this kind of language will probably feature very prominently in these sessions to study and implement the the third resolution. This idea that the problems that they are facing in China today that have an external origin and that basically the only way that they can now be handled is to call for greater unity within the party and within the nation. So I think that this is a signal that one of the key lessons to come out of this resolution and of the plenary session itself is that the party needs to be even more united than it has been before, even more solidly behind Xi Jinping than it was before. And, you know, again, I I, I want to suggest that this new attitude that is now seems to have been accepted within the foreign ministry and uh, this wolf warrior uh, style diplomacy, I think, has has given China perhaps even more challenges now to deal with than it had prior. So I, I would suggest I what I would have liked to have seen was a bit more reflection on whether or not this tough talk is the way to go um, into the future. That was Patricia Thornton from Oxford University. We're joined next by Jeremy Barmay, who spoke to us 
after the communique had come out, but before the final resolution. And I started by asking him about a phrase that really jumped out of the final communique for me. And that was uh, a quote that said, in terms of cultural construction, my country's ideological situation had undergone a complete and fundamental change. I then asked him whether that was true. No. <laughs> it's, well, the, so the communique itself is, you know, is like that. And there is an official translation of the communique if you'd like to you know, look, look at that, it is, which is in that wonderful doggerel English that is produced by old friends of mine at the Central Translation and Compilation Bureau in Beijing. Um, no, there's been, but this is the problem with the, well, not the problem, this is the issue um, when you have a new messiah. The new messiah and the new golden age require that everything be renewed. That's the nature of it, as it was in the case of the Deng Xiaoping. Well, we should call it the era of the eight immortals from 77 to 1997, the 20-year period in which the, the old sticks in the mud, the old people who survived the cultural revolution dominated the reform process um, and made sure that while putting Mao in, the, in a box and demaoifying to an extent, they justified everything they'd done during the 50s and 60s. After all, the 1981 resolution was about the dawn of the new age, as well as an affirmation of all of those who wrote it. And that's something many people forget. They all focus on Mao and forget that all these other monsters who authored the disaster of the early and mid-1950s have given themselves a pass in the 1981 resolution. Uh, in the lead-up to it, Deng Xiaoping had said quite clearly, we should make a point of the fact that from 1949 to 1957, everything Chairman Mao did was correct, i.e., we were his collaborators and co-creators of Mao Zedong thought. Therefore, everything we did was correct. Now, with the Xi Jinping era, you have the same, since 2012-13, you have the same dawning of the new era, the Xin Shidai, it's called. In the Deng Xiaoping era, people may have forgotten, um, from the 1978-9, it's called the Xin Shichi, the new era. So those of us who've been around too long, and I have been, um, uh, 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 you know, I, we're all tired out by how these leaders keep on winning, to use a Trumpian term. Are they, are they sick of winning yet, though? They're not going to be sick of winning for a while. Yet. But I mean, one of your, your great mentors, Simone Lays, had this great quote that the work of a sinologist was to sort of look through the, the desert and find the, the one thing in the desert that stood out. I mean, is there anything in this desert of, of words that, that, that jumped out at you? Well, in the presence of the communique, there's nothing particularly striking. Um, and that's not to denigrate it or undermine its significance. It does build on, if people have been paying attention, it builds on a particular line that has been pursued by the party since the Hu Jintao era, but in particular since 19, uh, 2013, when Xi Jinping, January 2013, he made a speech in which he declared, and incredibly important for this whole understanding of contemporary China and its future, he declared, or he announced what were called the two cannot negate, you know, Chinese. And these were, you cannot use the first 30 years of the People's Republic of China, i.e. the Maoist era, to negate the second 30 years, i.e. 78 to 2008. Nor can you use the second year to um, era of 30 years, that is the reform era of 1978 to 2000, you cannot use that era to negate the previous 30 years, in which he declared, so in January 2013, he declared, I will be the reconciler. I will reconcile 
the whole history of the People's Republic of China by picking and choosing policies and ideas in a fashion to forge a new type of consensus and belief for the future. And he's done so. So the, the communique is really a rearticulation of that. It further contains the official formula that was developed, what, 2017, 18, that there have been three great leaps in China. They're called, they're not Yue Jin, they're called Fei Yue. See, the Yue Jin is to tramp forward and make a leap over a gully. Fei Yue is to fly, exactly, to soar, soaring, a soaring leap. Um, it's, it's not earthbound, it's heavenbound. And the three leaps are the three eras. One is the 30 years of Mao, the 30 years of the Dungas reforms, and he has announced, and this is 2017, re-articulated in this um, communique, there'll be the next 30 years, I from 2010-11, until I des desire not to be in power anymore. So it's announcement of Xi Jinping staying, or his ideas, ruling China until at least the 2040s. So, I mean, you say this is the... Really, it's like an announcement. You said the new golden age, the new messiah. Is it in the tradition of the dynasties, you know, rewriting the history of the dynasty that's just been? Can we see it as that? No, no, not at all. And this is, again, I mean, many people have you know, been looking carefully since 2013 when Xi Jinping went down to Shenzhen and there was no big brouhaha made about Deng Xiaoping or any of that stuff. And they thought, oh, he's downgrading Deng Xiaoping. Well, yes or not, he was putting Deng in the reformist era in the context in which the party for some time has seen it, that it is part of this longer continuum. If one read the 1981 decision carefully, if one ever paid attention to what Jiang Zemin had said during his reign, if one bothered reading Hu Jintao's boring and numerous speeches, you will know that the basic essence of the Maoist style of revolution, not only its content, but the basic essence and line about national independence, party control, repression of dissent, marshalling of all state and private resources to further the mission of the party to realize the goals of nationhood and modernization, and the subjugation of all individuals to the greater collective of China, Chinese welfare, i.e. the party's existence, because it is all wise and all-knowing and infallible. Um, this has been at the cart of the whole enterprise for decades. One of the things that's sort of, I mean, I, I'm an old fogey and boring, but it's been extraordinary to watch in the last 10 years that people, i.e. observers of China, as well as many of my Chinese friends, have now been forced to realize, oh my God, the commies actually say what they want to do, and they do it. And we don't, might not like it, but they do say it, and it's pretty clear. And until now, to a great deal, until, until the last few years, it's been easy for the mindset that, well, the communists are just, all that stuff is just propaganda. They're really just about economic reform and surviving in power. They're manipulative and pragmatic. There's no real ideas behind it. No one believes in anything. Well, that's all fine and good, but what if they do? What if there is a core of belief among a certain group of hardened individuals, um, their self-interest is not only wedded to the party, but they actually believe this stuff. After all, it is the Communist Party's ideological framework is a surround sound, 360-degree, all-encompassing, holistic way of ordering reality. Seeing history, seeing time, seeing one's place in a larger enterprise, and also understanding the nature of human existence. It's, after all, like a cult. <laughs> and that's exactly what, And now, finally, people are 
gradually and reluctantly. And we're talking about international observers, uh, Chinese friends in China, dissident figures, as well as analysts and so-called China studies scholars. They're forced to actually start taking the commies seriously and reading what they write. I mean, when have you ever heard of any a group of international commentators others really reading a communist party communicate carefully? I mean, so people like me trained in the Maoist era, and I've always taken them very seriously. Um, not, uh, seriously, but with a great measure of you know, contempt, I must say. Um, it, it, it is amusing to see people try to now take, take, understand what the hell is going on? You mean, you mean this is all some coherent ideological world? Yes, it is. It stinks to high heaven, but it's real. So, so maybe let's go back to the, the very first resolution, which is, uh, you know, in some ways seems to have echoes of the current era in that there was, leading up to the first resolution, we had years and years of rectification and study. And it seems in some ways Xi Jinping has done something quite similar. I mean, do you see a lot of echoes of the first resolution in the third resolution? So the first resolution, as you're saying, came in 1945 um, at the time that um, a man who would eventually go on to be Mao's successor and who died for, for the role, Liu Shaoqi, um, formulated the concept of Mao Zedong thought. That was a Liu Shaoqi idea. And it came after nearly eight, nine years of deliberation. And the 45 resolution was written to put paid to the internal party struggles and the so-called line variations, the, the, the lurches towards extreme left or extreme rightist policies that had preceded it in the 1920s and 30s. Um, you could some, at that time, Stalinism was really holding sway in the Chinese Communist Party. After all, Stalin and the Comintern paid for the Communist Party to exist. It was first funded by the Soviets, or the Comintern in 1921, and it, its main source of income was, um, was Russian rubles um, right through the war period. Um, but Stalin summed up there's these lurches from left to right that were sort of encapsulated in the first historical decision, 1945, when he was asked, what is worse, a leftist deviation or a rightist deviation? And he famously remarked, both. Now Mao, <laughs> when his position was established in 45, made himself the ultimate arbiter of what was left and what was right and what was right when it was left and what was left when it was right. It might sound confusing to your listeners, but if they study the Mao era, they will understand that that's exactly what happened thereafter. It put Mao in the position of the historical center of the Chinese revolution and therefore at the center of Chinese history. It came at the end, as you said, of this period of rectification. What was a rectification? A rectification began in the early 1940s and was a period of concentrated political study which every Kada and Communist Party member had to go through. So they aligned their thinking with the party's dicta, with their canon. And people studied, learned the texts off by heart, denounced their previous bourgeois errant beliefs and ideas, and learned how to mouth the line, and if hopefully transform their inner world so they believed wholeheartedly in the communist worldview. It was a stunningly successful. It lasted for three, four years. Thousands died in the process. Many people didn't make it. War Guan, it was called in Chinese, get through the pass. Many people didn't make it through the pass. Um, <laughs> but it did establish the Maoist model. And if you want to have a quick snapshot of what it looks like, Liu Shaoqi is the first person who really articulated it very clearly. In 1939, in a famous lecture he gave called How to Be a Good Communist. 
Lun Gungchandang and the Shuyang. And that text is the first major communist text, everyone had to study it, in which Liu Shaoqi combines Marxist-Stalinist principles with Menchian and Confucian ideas to create what, would, what now people think is you know, Xi Jinping's unique combination of traditional ideas with Marxist-Leninist um, ideology. No, 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 it's been going on. This has been going on for 80 years, and Liu Shaoqi is the master of it. But yes, the first resolution, it unified party thought, putting Mao at the very center of history, just as this resolution um, has put Xi Jinping at the very heart not only of the ongoing transformation of China, but also the revolutionary enterprise of offering hope to the whole world. If you're you know, stumbling through the desert, if you're looking at the ideology, what is there that we can see in the communique that sets the Xi Jinping era apart in ideological terms from what's come before? Well, so in many ways, it, it talks about the 10 perseveres, the sugar jianshi, so the basic things in regard to reform, party construction, national union, so on, so on, that must be persevered with, that must continue. Then it talks about also the unique things of the Xi Jinping era that have combined elements of the reformist period, the, the second great, great you know, soaring leap with um, China's contemporary in a way that responds to the global environment of crisis in which China finds itself. Now, so you can go through, point by point, you can look at what the party claims these are, including China has developed a unique form of thoroughgoing democracy, which is, it says, is now being perfected in the Xi Jinping era in a way that is unique in the history of the party. I mean, all tosh in my opinion, but it's called Chenguo Again, a concept first articulated by Xi and his thinkers in 2019. So there's nothing really new in the, um, in the document. It just recodifies and lines up the previously articulated ideas. Um, but it's the belief that all of these things, whether it's reform, um, people's livelihood, military developments, um, the relationship with Taiwan, China's stunning global engagement, and so on and so forth, all of these things are Xi Jinping's genius response to the global crisis that's been unfolding. After all, since 2017, he has mentioned that China has been facing an untoward global crisis of a kind unseen for 100 years. Now, as I've commented elsewhere, most of the crises China is facing are of his making. But being the great leader, he must be the person who can resolve the crises that he will never admit having made. So it's just a point worth remembering. Um, and this document really outlines the fact that Xi Jinping's unique contribution to Marxist-Leninist thought is the contribution in the context of China's unfolding global role. The role that will lead by 2049 to China being, and this is the aim of the second centenary, which will be marked by the founding of the centenary, the founding of the, of the People's Republic of China, which will make China the global predominant military and um, economic power. There'll be no devil in the detail of the actual document when it'll be released. But Xi Jinping is remarkable among Communist Party leaders in having spoken not only often, but at great length about everything he thinks or everything his thinkers think. And therefore we have a pretty good idea of what Xi Jinping's vision for China today happens to be. There's not that many surprises. So the communique is not particularly Surprising. I mean, it is, as to, I, I quoted Václav Havel the other day when I wrote something, history has boredom. 
<laughs> now, look, you've written about the echoes for intellectuals in the Yenan era when they were called on to um, drop their pants, cut off their tails and get in line to wash in public. Are we in line for more thought work? And have the tools changed at all over the last 80 years or are they still applying the same methods? Same methods. Um, if you listen to the uh, what was was laughably called the press conference that followed the publication of the communique on Friday, and you saw that sort of lineup of the you know, propaganda officials, there we had an example of what will unfold now. And there you had some deputy head of the propaganda department of the party, the head of such and such a central documentary compilation bureau and blah, 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 these various officials. And each of them were there. Of course, on one level, they were answering by rote certain questions, you know, Dorothy Dixon's thrown from the audience. On another level, if one's more finely attuned to the to Communist Party intra-party behavior, they were all vying with each other to come up with certain snap phrases or formulations that would reach Xi Jinping himself and impress him. So the performance was, of course, for an international and national audience, but it was also for the only audience that matters. We think of Donald Trump. The only audience that matters is Xi Jinping, the ultimate arbiter. Ding yi zun. So that sets the tone. For the minute the real, so the People's Day has already been publishing long commentaries and many editorials on the brilliance of the, the uh, spirit, what it's called, the spirit of the sixth plenary session of the Communist Party, uh, the Communist Party's 19th Congress. Once the actual resolution is published, volumes of material will be churned out, analyzing every single sentence, explicating every turn of phrase, every comment. So there'll be these guided readers, there'll be um, cut down chapters and articles and analyses by every major thinking thought research institution in China, and there are dozens of them. So the media will be full of this stuff for weeks and weeks to come, and at the party meetings, I don't know how often they are, they used to be twice a week, um, the two or three hours each time, a party meeting, 95 million people will have to sit there and they'll have to learn, not only learn how to understand the actual text, the, the, holy, the holy writ itself, but how to interpret the text and then how, crucially, Graham, to recast it in your own words. <laughs> it's just like high school. So this is the methodology that was applied in the 1940s. Um, it's based on the Stalinist model. Stalin was a seminarian who was a great believer in Eastern Orthodox type of orthodoxies. And Mao and his colleagues picked that up and combined it with a sort of late dynastic form of neo-Confucian rote learning. So yes, the basic methodology is the same. The aim is, and this is again from the Yanan era, the aim is to sandao, they show dao. So you have to be able to write, replicate the right line. Kou dao. You have to be able to replicate it verbally. And the xin dao, your heart, must be able to internalize and replicate the essence of the message. So san dao are crucial. And, and when you talk about these volumes of materials that are produced, this is something I saw in my time in Anhui, which was really resented from the bottom, that this is a huge profit, profitable enterprise from the perspective of the publishing houses. And people in the local government resented having to pay for all this rubbish and have to study it all. So this is going to be an absolute windfall for your former colleagues. And so true. Many years ago, I did a book on the revival of the Mao cult in the late 80s and early 90s. And that book was inspired by the fact that a friend of mine gave me, in the late 80s, gave me all of the documents produced by the New China Bookstore, Xinhua Shudian, the main publication outlet, on um, like, like you know, 50 documents 
on how do we pulp the works of Mao? Who pays for it? How do we recycle the paper? How do we get out of um, not making political errors? And there was document after document after document with a detailed economic breakdown as well as a regional breakdown. We've got 1.2 billion images of Chairman Mao. What are we going to do with them? There's 400 million copies of the four volume set of Chairman Mao's works. How do we pulp them? Because we've got 50 warehouses throughout China in which they're stored and we have to have special guards going around opening the cases and flipping through the pages so they don't go moldy. It's costing us 70 billion renminbi. I'm not kidding. I, so I studied those documents and thought, now this is a real, what an interesting, how do you get rid of a great leader? So we're going in quite the opposite direction now. So is it a sea cult? I mean, is it like sort of Mao in 66 or something? How, how do you, as a scholar of the Chinese cult, where do you place this? Well, as I've said many times, Xi's personality cult is a cult without personality. It's really, <laughs> really because, I mean, one of the problems with Xi, I, I know, I do you know, read all the hosannas and all this type of stuff, but let's face it, Xi Jinping hasn't really done anything. I mean, Mao, for all of his horrors and monstrosity, after all, you know, was there at the founding of the party, was the main leader, you know, the coordinating leader of um, the Communist Party's war with both the KMT and the Japanese. And then he was in charge of the country, you know, for better or for worse, for from 49 to 1976. Um, so he did a lot of stuff. Importantly, he looked like this sort of ambisexual type of character in his later years, this, you know, father-mother figure. And he also had the whole philosopher you know, poet side to him, and is you know, the calligraphic poems and, you know, his, his doggerel poems. The poems are extraordinarily interesting. He was also, the, he had gnomic utterances and incisive comments. He had an incredible sense of humor and uh, was a very sardonic character, um, incredibly manipulative, a genius, a truly terrifying genius. That's why they haven't got rid of him. They've not managed to get rid of him, and they won't ever get rid of him. Um, a, a topic I, I debated with Rod McFarquhar back in the early 90s, and he thought I was being, you know, a bit soft-headed. I'm afraid, you know, I win. Um, <laughs> anyway, Xi Jinping has none of that stuff. So the cult is propped up by the machinery. It's propped up also by the sense of crisis. And as I said, the clash with America, the trade war with America, has been a godsend. I mean, thank God for that. And thank God for COVID. I mean, so Xi Jinping has helped create the very crises that history has given China this man to resolve. So that's where we are at the moment. He's a cult without much achievement, but a lot of bombast, a lot of airplay and so on and so forth. We have still very few people screaming out, Xi Jinping, say, long live Chairman Xi. And we have yet to see true apotheosis, perhaps. I mean, I'm very hopeful. And sorry that I sound so flippant, but if you've lived through a couple of cults, and I've seen the Deng Xiaoping cult and I lived through the Mao cult you know, in my teens and early 20s when I lived in China and I saw it all collapse. You, you tend to be rather sardonic about these things, but perhaps next year with the 20th Party Congress, we'll see a further move towards an apotheosis, something greater. When I remember I've been thinking a great deal of a lovely book I read in the late 70s when I began to think about the Mao cult a lot um, by George Urban, who was one of the editors of the um, Encounter magazine, funded by the CIA, great magazine, if anyone's interested in understanding the Eastern European view of socialism, which I think is very relevant today to China. Um, and Georgia Bunn edited a volume in 1971 called The Miracles of Chairman Mao. It's a compendium in English of 
articles from the People's Daily, from Peking Review and China Reconstruct about the miracles that Chairman Mao thought, the mere recitation of his quotes could achieve. People being operated on without anesthetic and they could cope with the pain because they were reading Chairman Mao's quotes or people who were deaf who were given back their hearing because they read Chairman Mao's quotes. So we're talking about real, we're talking about, you know, real cultish type behavior. So we're a long way off, I'm afraid, with Xi Jinping. You'll have to really perform a few miracles and just liberating Taiwan ain't going to be enough. Finally, I mean, is this, do you think, Jeremy, is this the end of Com Chinese Communist Party history? Can there be a fourth resolution or is that now impossible um, as she, while she's in power? Well, it, it's, it's, a true, it's a true dilemma. Um, and I mean, many people who've read my work know that I've despised Xi Jinping for the, from the moment he became head of the party because of the way, it was obvious by 2013-14, and that's when I began talking of him as the chairman of everything, that he was, um, what well, to use a Steve Bannon line, he was flooding the zone, zone with shit. I mean, he was just occupying all available space. And that has left China with a, the terrible classic dilemma of a succession crisis. It is in a succession crisis. It's going to be an ongoing crisis. It's left China with these three soaring leaps. What other leap can there be? How can you leap beyond leaping? How can you leap from a third age into a fourth age? Is it possible? That's what's terrible about the Xi Jinping era is that and many people have commented on he, in his person, and his propagandists have, to an extent, foreclosed Chinese history for the next 30 or 40 years. And that, for any nation, for a place as inventive, creative, quirky, and extraordinary as China, for this fate to have befallen the People's Republic is truly, magnificently, horrifyingly tragic. That it's befallen Hong Kong is... It just, you know, if I start talking, I'll start, I'll start weeping. It, it's beyond horrifying. That it could befall Taiwan is just shakes me to the core of my being. Appalling. Indeed, he has left no, he has left no history left to be lived. His story is the end of, to use Fukuyama, as I've said for many years, he has basically declared that the Communist Party under him is the end of Chinese history. The future is not thinkable. I'm Grant Smith, and you've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Many thanks to our guests, Jeremy Barmay and Patricia Thornton, and my co-host, Louisa Lim. Editing is by Andy Hazel, background research by Wing Kwong, our music is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifts come courtesy of Seb Danta. If you've listened this far, please give us your vote in the People's Choice category of the Australian Podcast Awards. We really appreciate it. And we also appreciate the people who've supported us over the years. Shout-outs, in particular, to Gavin Neighbour, Ivan Franceschini, Jane Golly, Buffy Gorilla, Julia Bergen, Xu Chong, and last but not least, Sarah Logan. Bye for now. <laughs>